Lucius of Cyrene, and Benin, of the foster brother of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me and Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Okay, great. So, what was that first phrase you read from the beginning of the verse? No, no. there were at Antioch. Now, there were at Antioch. So, what's Antioch? What's the significance of this church? And basically what's happened is, think of Christianity as like a social movement at this point, right? It started off in Jerusalem, and it's very Jerusalem-centered. That's where all the leaders are. That's where all the major people are. But now they're springing up this new center of faith, and it's in Antioch. Uh, it's the first place where Christians are called Christians, actually. It's the place where uh, Barnabas sort of was sent from Jerusalem to look at the Christians there, to see, because many of them were non-Jewish, and the leaders in Jerusalem were initially like, is this okay? Are we okay with this? Let's go check, out, check them out, see what they're doing. So Barnabas goes over there, and when he sees the fellowship they have and the love they have for one another and the love for God, he's overjoyed. And so he goes and finds Saul, who went into hiding because the Jews all wanted to kill him, and he brings Saul to be a teacher at that church with him and with a few other elders. That's the, those are the folks that you read off. Um, and that's significant for a couple of reasons. One reason is that there are a lot of churches that we know of today that still uh, claim association with Antioch. I think Allen's church might be one of them, right? Like the patriarchs in Antioch, right? So there's like 2018 years of tradition there. Uh, and, as you, and it's also interesting to see how providential that is when you consider it from the standpoint of history because what ends up happening is in AD 70, Jerusalem is totally destroyed by the Romans. And so Jerusalem as kind of the leading city of Christianity is wiped out. And all the leaders, the, the early church scatters in the year AD 70. And because Antioch is there, it's really able to kind of take leadership together with the church in Rome uh, for the rest of the Christians going on. And so you see the hand of God there in raising up a new leading church uh, early on. Second thing that well, I want to uh, talk about is the identity of the leaders and the amazing grace of uh, God in choosing the unexpected to lead. So can you read off the names again? Um, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, the foster brother of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Yeah, so Simeon called the Niger. People aren't clear totally what that means, but it means, it literally means Simeon the Black. So... People have you know, speculated, does this mean this is like an African? We know that Philip preached to Philip, uh, Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch earlier on, so there were African Christians already. So you see, like, the people who are all set up as leaders here are unexpected people. People who in normal society would not always be the leaders. You have the Cyrene, so he's someone from like uh, a smaller island in the empire, it's kind of like a nowhere's land. Menean, the member of Herod's court. Herod is killing the Christians right now. This is a guy who serves in this court. Uh, Barnabas, the encourager, he's, he's kind of like a very Jewish Jew from uh, Jerusalem. Saul, the former persecutor of the church. These are the people who are leading, and they're all a group together. It's kind of like when Jesus calls his disciples, what you notice is they're strange bedfellows. People you would not expect to be together are serving and leading together. So you have Peter, who's a fisherman. You have Matthew, who's a tax collector. That means he's like collaborating with the empire. And then you have Simon the Zealot, who, which means that he's, he was a revolutionary. He was fighting against the empire. And yet they're all part of one company. And so you see like the, 
one of the things that the grace of God does is it brings people together from very different walks of life. And, and the other thing I want to comment on there is the habits of the leader in Antioch. So what you see is when they, they don't decide just, hey, we should start a missionary program, right? What happens in that story? What happens is that they're fasting and praying, and then they get direction from the Spirit of the Lord. And so you see that they are reliant, their regular practice is fasting and praying, and it's in the course of that that they're led to send off Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries. A lot of times we want to strike out on our own and get things going uh, because we think that's what we're supposed to be doing. But are you, and we use that language, I feel led to do this, but are you actually fasting and praying before? Is that your regular practice? Do you have a regular practice of prayer? Because I think it's only then, are you in a community that's fasting and praying together? I think it's only then that you can start to be confident that you're feeling led by the Spirit, and it's not just your own personal inclinations. Because a lot of times what we'll do is we'll say, I'm led by the Spirit, but it's really just what we wanted to do anyway, right? Like, I'm, I feel led to pursue this girl. Um, really? Or is it just what you kind of wanted to do anyway? Are you fasting and praying about it? Are you talking about it in community? Are you reading scripture? All that kind of stuff. So, uh, so those are just the things I wanted to talk about for the first uh, three verses. One last thing about those first three verses Barnabas had come and brought Saul to be leaders of this church. And, and so when they get the call from the Spirit to send them away, you could expect that they might be a little bit nervous about that, right? Because Barnabas and Saul were the leaders, and now they're being sent away. But you also see that they immediately put their hands on them, pray for them, and send them out. And you see a confidence in the Lord that he is going to provide and that he is going to lead. And the history of Antioch shows that the Lord does provide. The, the church flourishes even after uh, Paul and Barnabas leave. So let's continue on, uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 4 to 12. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they, also have, uh, and they had also John as their attendant. And when they had gone through the whole island unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Dorian? Uh, you went to verse 12, right? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, who was with the preconsul Sergius Pallas, a man of understanding? The same called unto him Barnabas and Saul, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elmas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn aside the preconsul from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fastened his eyes on him, and said, O fool of all guile and all villainy, thou son of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt Thou wilt not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and darkness, and a darkness. And he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the preconsul, when he saw that what was done, believed, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, great. Thank you. So, what we're going to see in this passage after Paul and Barnabas are sent out, uh, for the rest of this chapter, and we're going to be spending this Sunday and also next Sunday looking at this chapter, is how <coughs> they are able to preach the gospel successfully or winsomely. And there are two aspects of it. They preach the gospel with power, and they also preach the gospel with wisdom. So preaching with power, first of all, uh, they're sent into enemy territory. Basically, they're sent out into Rome, which is becoming increasingly antagonistic toward the Christian church. We, we saw that already with Herod kind of capturing the Christians to please the Romans in the last chapter. He killed James. He put Peter into prison. Peter was rescued by an angel. You guys kind of remember that story, right? Uh, 
And now they're being sent out. And so it's kind of helpful in your head if you have a map. So I'm going to use this wall here. Use your imagination. So Jerusalem's here. Antioch's here. This is the coast. And then here is Cyprus. Okay? So it's an island. And the island is kind of like in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. You got Rome all the way here in Italy, Greece up to the north, and then Turkey here. So the logical place from Antioch to come out to the rest of the Roman Empire is to go to Cyprus first. And it also helps that Barnabas is actually originally from Cyprus. That's his home island. So it kind of makes sense that they would go there. Antioch is like basically just a short hop over. Uh, and you notice when, if you were paying attention to what Benson had read, they, they have a strategy that they use whenever they preach the gospel that is the same pattern they use no matter where they go. And it's introduced here in this first time they go to Cyprus. Uh, and that strategy is to take the message of the gospel to the heart of whatever cultural institution uh, is sort of like the center of social life in that community. A lot of times when we think about evangelism or sharing the faith, we think about it one-to-one. -one. And that makes sense in a lot of contexts because, you know, you have a friend who you, you just want to share Jesus about. And we see examples of that in scripture too, where it's one-to-one. -one. But when you see like Paul and Barnabas, what they're doing is not so much one-to-one. -one. It's more finding the places of cultural power and speaking the, heart, the gospel in the heart of it. So they go, what's the center of Jewish life? It's the synagogue. So they go to the synagogue and they preach the gospel there. What's the center of Roman uh, life? It's politics. It's you know, sort of the public square uh, where the proconsul is, the governor. So they go to the top. And when you look at the history of Christianity in Europe, actually, it, it, in not just Europe, around the world, a lot of the ways that major conversions happen is that the missionaries come and they find who the village chief is or they find who the king is or the queen is and they preach the gospel to them. And when they convert, everyone else kind of converts with them. And this should tell us something. This is kind of a clue. Um, belief is not just an individual intellectual thing. Belief is actually a social thing. We believe in a community, a community that helps support our belief, helps explain to us what our beliefs actually mean. And so one of the problems that you may find when you're trying to share the gospel with, you know, a, a friend of a different religion or a different, you know, a different sort of worldview is that they may feel constrained because their community believes something different, right? So if you're part of a community of like people who are hardcore atheists, it's going to be harder for you to like join into the social life and uh, of Christians, because it, it means walking away from something else. Something else has to die. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the same if you're preaching to a devout Hindu or a devout Muslim or a devout Bud Buddhist, right? There, there's a sacrifice there that has to happen. And a lot of times when we preach one-to-one, -one, we're not aware of that social context behind them. And so you see what, what Paul and Barnabas are doing is they're identifying what the, the heart of the social context is. So it's almost as if someone... Like, it's almost as if Paul and Barnabas would be going to a mosque and, and preaching the gospel because the mosque is the center of devout Muslim life, right? That's kind of what they're doing. That's what their strategy is. So I just wanted to note that for you guys. Uh, next thing I wanted to talk about is <clears throat> in verse 7, Sergius Paulus wanted to hear the, the word of God. So, so who's Sergius Paulus? He's the Roman governor, right? The Roman Empire rules this whole part of the world, including Cyprus, this guy's the guy in charge of Cyprus. And he seems to be close with this local magician who has two names, Bar-Jesus and Elemis. Don't let that confuse you. It's the same guy. And Sergius Paulus wants to hear the word of God. And note that in the end, at the end of this story, the Roman governor is converted. 
I, that's important because if you, especially Lippin, since you've been here before, like Rome is often set up as an enemy, but it's not an automatic enemy. So that's, there's a lesson for us there as well in that we should never give up hope on anyone, that anyone can be reached. Even Herod, you know, could have been reached. Even Sergius Paulus can be reached. A lot of times when we, I know you guys are doing this sort of like this network mapping stuff in uh, one way and, and stuff. And sometimes when you're considering that, you may think, well, that person would never believe, but this person's a good candidate. And don't do that. Don't write someone off prematurely. The, the word of God is powerful enough to reach anyone. And you have to have confidence in that, not in yourself. If, if you're basing your confidence on yourself or who you're better friends with, it's not going to work. Your confidence has to be based on the word of God. But you also see that immediately when Paul goes to Sergius Paulus, he's met with opposition, right? And this opposition is opposition that doesn't really make sense to us now living in sort of 21st century America, but it's opposition that comes up repeatedly in the book of Acts, actually, and it's magic, the form of magic, right? So we saw a little bit about magic earlier in Acts chapter 8. We see, we're going to see it again in chapter 19, and we see it here in Acts chapter 13 personified by Elemas, a.k.a. Bar-Jesus. And basically this guy is, you know, Paul is trying to convert the governor, uh, explaining the gospel to the governor. And then this guy is saying, no, this is all false. You know, he's, he's saying, don't believe him. Elemas is saying that. And then I just want to note, Paul looks intently at Elemas. And I think this is significant because it, it, this is a phrase that comes up in Acts a lot of times. And it seems to be associated with this, like, a deep understanding that comes from the spirit where you're able to look at someone and understand what their true motivation is, right? Because someone could be saying, don't listen to them, and they're just actually confused. But Paul looks at this guy and he says, actually, you, you have a wicked motive here. There's somehow, by opposing Christ, you're able to maintain your power over this person, maintain your power and status in the community. And so you are trying to oppose the gospel of Christ for selfish, evil reasons, and so you're going to be condemned. And then, and then what he does is, after, as soon as he speaks that truth with real understanding and looks at him intently, he's struck down with blindness. And it's, it's interesting because it, it seems to be the same kind of temporary blindness that Paul had after he had a vision of Christ. And so that leaves us an open question, like, will Elemis also reform, or will he not? And that's kind of how we can react to God's judgment on our lives sometimes. Sometimes we're going down a path and something bad will happen to us and we don't understand that that's the love of God trying to restrain us and pull us back on the right path. And so it can either be a temporary blindness or it can become a permanent blindness if we stay on that path and if we don't understand that God is trying to chasten us and pull us back with that judgment. All right. Uh, so then also, this is the first time that Saul starts to become known as Paul. I think this is just interesting to know. It's not, you know, sometimes people say Saul, who is the persecutor of Jews, became Paul, who is like the great Christian. That's actually not what really happened in this instance. It's not that he renamed himself. What happened is when Saul went out into the Greek-speaking communities, there's this word called solos, which means like walking in a feminine manner. And so he probably was like, I probably shouldn't go around with the name Saul. So he started going by a very similar sounding Greek name, Paul. That's all that happened there. It's just interesting to know. Uh, all right, so let's continue on with verses 13 to 15. Uh, now Paul and his company set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. 
they passing through per from Perga came to Antioch of Pisidia, um, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading the reading of the law and the prophets, and the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Great. So, basically what happened here is, they went to Cyprus, the island, then they went to Turkey, and they went to another city called Antioch, but it's not the first Antioch. So don't get confused by that. There's Antioch of Pisidia and the normal Antioch. And, again, they're going to the center of Jewish culture, which are the synagogues, and uh, before we get into what Paul says at the synagogues and everything, I just want to note, uh, there's like a, it's kind of a throwaway sentence, but it becomes uh, more important later on. John Mark, who writes the Gospel of Mark, he's a young man at this point. He went with Paul and Barnabas to assist them on their missionary journey. And this is just the beginning of the journey. They just went to one place, and they went to a second place. And Mark kind of abandons them. He just leaves. Uh, and so Mark goes back to Jerusalem, where his mother is, so it's kind of like he's running back to his mommy. And uh, later on, this becomes a source of a major falling out between Paul and Barnabas that never really, as far as we know, never really gets healed. It's not told us it, it gets healed because later on, Bar Barnabas wants to take Mark on another journey. And Paul's like, no, I mean, he abandoned us earlier. Why can, how can we trust him? They have an argument and then they part ways. And, and yet they're both still faithful you know, ministers of God. So I think there's a clue to us there that sometimes in ministry, people are going to leave. And in ministry, sometimes people are even going to fight. Uh, and no one is ever told, we're never told, was Paul right? Was Barnabas right? Was Mark right in leaving? Was he wrong in leaving? All we know is that sometimes conflicts come when you're leading, uh, even when you're working uh, within, for the kingdom. Sometimes conflicts come. And sometimes in this life, those conflicts will never totally be healed. And we have to be okay with that. We have, to, we have to still maintain a spirit of love and humility in the midst of that. So I just, I just thought that was an interesting thing to uh, think about. Uh, the other thing about that is that Mark's abandonment does not preclude him from still working for the kingdom of God. God is so gracious. People sometimes do abandon us. People leave us. They uh, kind of leave us hanging and we're, we're not sure how to, how to take it. Uh, sometimes it can be very discouraging. I think one of the things we should do is pray for those people because God can still use them in very mighty ways. Mark eventually goes on to become, basically he joins Peter in Rome and the tradition is Mark writes the gospel of Mark based off of Peter's preaching. And so the first gospel was actually written by a guy who early on abandoned Paul and Barnabas in their first missionary journey. So I think that's encouraging to us that it's never over. Our stories are never over. All right, so the last thing is that the practice... You know, Paul and Barnabas are invited to preach at the Jewish synagogues. That's because the practice in Jewish synagogues at that time is, it was a very high trust culture, right? Like if you were a Jew, you were automatically in. And so if you're a stranger coming in, they would ask you to give a word of encouragement or a word of interpretation, and they would just stand up and preach. So that's how they had the opportunity to preach there. All right, let's continue on, uh, verses 16 to 25, and then we'll end after that. And Paul stood up and beckoning with the hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, hearken. The God of his people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they sojourned in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm led he them forth out of it. And for about the time of forty years as a nursing father bare he and them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations and seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land for an inheritance for about four hundred and fifty years. And after these things he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. 
and afterwards they asked for a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for the space of forty years. And when he had removed himself, he raised up David to be their king, to whom he also bare witness and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own my heart, who shall do all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to promise, brought unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was fulfilling his course, and he said, What suppose ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there were cometh one after me, the shoes of whose feet I am not worthy to unloose. Okay, that's awesome. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because that's actually going to be the focus of our uh, next gathering next week. We're going to analyze in depth uh, basically the latter half of chapter 13. But I think this is the model for all cultural ap apologetics. If you look at what Paul is doing here, this is the way that you effectively uh, come into someone's worldview and show them how the gospel actually speaks to their situation. So first of all, you have to understand that a person lives in a culture and you have to identify what that culture is shaping them to desire for or long for. So for the Jews, what they were shaped for, what they were longing for, was an Israelite king. And so what Paul does is he relies on Jewish authorities, which is the Torah, right, the law and the prophets. And he looks at all the examples of the kings and the purpose of the kingship. So that's why he's talking about Saul and David, he's the first two kings of united Israel. That's why he's talking about how long it took for God to fulfill his plan. And, he, and then he takes that longing and he reorients it and he shows you how the culture on its own could not fulfill that longing. Israel, if you know the story of Israel, Israel failed. Despite having the line of Davidic kings, over and over again it failed because its kings were flawed themselves. Even David, who was a man after God's own heart, was also somewhat of a failure in a, as a king in many different ways. And so what you see is like Israel's at this conundrum now where they're part of the Roman Empire and, and they believe that they are the people of God and that God is going to rule through them. That's what the Jewish hope was, that through them God would rule the rest of the world. He would declare everyone would come to the temple in Jerusalem and worship God there. That was kind of their hope. And what they don't realize is that, um, and what they're struggling with is how can we do that when we finally understand like the weight of our own sin? And what Paul is doing is he's saying, through Jesus Christ, the true Israelite, God has made a provision for Israel's sin. And because Israel's sin is now accounted for, the world's sin can be accounted for. And Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind of king you were expecting. Instead of ruling with power and coming with power, he came in weakness. Instead of sort of accruing glory for himself, he sacrificed glory in order to lift other people up. It's a totally, it's an upside down notion of what a kingdom is. And so now we're called to live that way. So you identify what the longings are, and then you show how the culture cannot actually meet those longings, and then you reorient the culture's longings towards Christ. That's kind of the model for cultural apologetics. And we're going to look at that more in depth next week. Um, okay, well, let's close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that uh, during this Lent season, we continue to prepare our hearts um, and divest, help us to die to the things that are holding us back from fully committing uh, to the ways of your kingdom. Uh, the, the worldviews, the um, subconscious biases or desires that actually point us away from you, help us to reorient them toward you 
and help us to have such a love for our neighbor that we understand that in many ways we are being false witnesses of who you are. Give us a desire to correct that so that we, in our lives, we are truly testifying to who you are and what you have done for us on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.